in our Easter series, Easter from the Gospel of John. We've reached uh, John chapter 20 and we're going to read all of that now. So John chapter 20, reading from verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After this, he said, uh, after he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. 
But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We're living in strange times uh, just now, aren't we? Um, I was going to say that the world hasn't seen a pandemic like the one that's currently keeping us apart for, and I went to look up how long, I didn't know how long we haven't seen this for, so I looked up a list of epidemics and pandemics to find out, and I don't recommend that you look for that list. Uh, it's not a happy read. Basically, there is uh, very frequently an outbreak of this or that or something else, uh, although obviously this is uh, worse than most uh, in spread at least. Uh, let's just say that we've uh, never seen anything quite like it in our lifetimes, the impact, the disruption, the exhausting daily briefings. I think it'll take a while before we realize what a significant time we're experiencing. Sometimes we do live through very significant events. We might think of those who fought in world wars. We might think of people who worked alongside uh, particular figures like uh, Martin Luther King or uh, Nelson Mandela. We might think of people who witnessed great events of history and uh, think that we would love to stumble across a diary or a journal of theirs. We would love to get a sense of what it felt like to live in such a time and to see things happen up close. But that's definitely what we've got on our hands as we hold John's Gospel. Here's a man who witnessed events that, even for a non-Christian, have plainly shaped our world for all of the 2,000 years since. Here's a man who watched events that reshaped our world, who um, stood at a a crossroads between this and a very different alternate reality. And without even realising the privilege of it or the fascination of it, we have his first-hand eyewitness account of a day that changed the world forever. More than that, a day that has changed countless lives across the globe and throughout history and can still change lives today. It's the story of a great man, a teacher, a miracle worker, a healer, a friend, a preacher from God who is now dead. Rejected by his people, betrayed by a friend, and executed by the experts of the day, his body now lies cold in a tomb. What will our eyewitness report? What can he have left to tell us? That the spirit of Jesus lives on? That the teaching of Jesus lives on? That the idea and the morals and the pattern of Jesus lives on? Well, not quite. John gives us two bare facts and one urgent instruction. Two bare facts and one urgent instruction. Here's where he begins with the first fact. The tomb is empty. The dead man's tomb is empty. You can't miss uh, the emphasis on Jesus' tomb at the start of this chapter. I think it's mentioned uh, eight times in 11 verses. Ordinarily, if you were editing a piece of writing like this, you'd want to reduce the repetition. It would look like an error. But John mentions the tomb like he's chiming a bell. He really wants us to think about the tomb. Uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke say the tomb was cut out of rock. And they all mention the stone rolled across the front. Archaeologists describe these stones as huge discs placed in slightly sloping channels so that they roll down easily into place to cover the entrance of a tomb but are much harder to roll back up to reopen it again. Mary arrives super early on this Sunday morning. There are other women with her, hence verse 2, we don't know where they have put him. Um, they arrive to find a heavy stone already rolled up and out of the way and the tomb open and the tomb is empty. And they rush to tell the disciples, at least two of whom come running, Peter and John, who 
likes to refer to himself in the third person. <laughs> uh, John arrives first and peers in. Peter comes behind and barges right on inside. Uh, very much in character for Peter. Uh, and inside the tomb, verses 6 and 7, there are the strips of linen used to wrap Jesus' body, presumably caked in the great sackful of burial spices brought by Nicodemus. Um, and there's the, the cloth from Jesus' head, folded, or um, the word could be twirled, beside them. Peter and John perhaps expected the tomb to be completely empty and the valuable linen stolen or the body removed in its wrappings. But with all this material lying here, it's as if Jesus has vanished from within the grave cloth. It's lying there like an empty cocoon or, or chrysalis. John says at that point he believed. Although verse 9 is interesting, isn't it? They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. But we might expect John to say that this is when he put all the pieces together. Jesus kept telling them that he would rise again according to the scriptures. But the disciples didn't even want to hear about him having to die in the first place. The scripture just kind of drips with promises that God's true king will reign forever. That God will not leave him in the grave or let his holy one see decay. Psalm 16. John admits that even now on Easter morning none of them have really figured it out. They haven't put the pieces together and they weren't expecting this at all. It's an honest confession and one that puts a nail in the coffin of the idea that the disciples made the whole thing up. The tomb is empty. The heavy stone has been rolled away. Jesus' body is missing but the grave clothes are still there, still in place. The only people with any motivation to hide the body and pretend that Jesus has risen are standing here slack-jawed trying to figure it out, admitting that they still haven't put two and two together. But when they do later on, they'll go to their deaths rather than change their story. The tomb is empty and the man who raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, who claimed himself to be the resurrection and the life and who repeatedly promised to rise from his own death on the third day has disappeared from his own tomb, right on schedule. The tomb is empty. That's our first bare fact. Here comes the second. The tomb is empty because, secondly, Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen. Mary, having told the disciples about her early morning discovery, seems to return to the tomb with them or behind them. And when Peter and John leave, she's left there alone, confused, upset what a strain those days must have been for all those who loved jesus as mary did she doesn't know what to do but when she meets these two angels uh, they ask her why she's crying not really an appropriate question to ask in a cemetery is it why the tears well what else would you do in a graveyard jesus himself wept at the tomb of his friend lazarus in john 11 that we looked at what, two weeks ago? Uh, but there's no need to cry at the tomb of Jesus. No need to go and lay flowers. She half turns, verse 14, noticing someone nearby, but doesn't seem to fully look until verse 16. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turns towards him and cries out, Teacher. We might imagine how she probably grabbed hold of him wrapping her arms around his neck or taking hold of his hands or falling on her knees and grabbing him by the ankles holding tight determined not to let him get away not to lose him again 
And uh, there's been a lot of ink spilt over what Jesus says next. Verse 17. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. But go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Some of the speculation about uh, that verse uh, isn't really worth repeating, but uh, one option is that going forward into the age of the church, the way that we will know Jesus won't be by touch and sight anymore, but by being united to him by faith and sealed by the Spirit sent to us by Jesus. Now, all of that is theologically correct. That is our experience. Uh, and it chimes with verse 29. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. But I wonder if it's something as simple as Mary hanging on to him for dear life. And Jesus says, Mary, don't worry. I will ascend to the Father soon, but that time hasn't come just yet. You don't have to cling on so tight. This won't be the last time you see me. I'm not going yet. I think you could take either of those options, and neither would be far off the mark. Either way, she's got a job to do for him, rather than clinging on to him. Verse 17, uh, do not hold on to me. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary has a message. Death is defeated. Jesus is risen. The king has returned. His reign is beginning. And not only that, but the doors of God's house are flung open now for all who come with Jesus. My father and your father. My God and your God. Jesus is risen. There are a bunch of broken people near Mary who need to hear about what has happened and all that it means. Is that going to be our response as Christians to Easter? Will we, um, will we cling to him for comfort? Or will we get out there and tell others? Will you have an opportunity this week? Will you make an opportunity this week? Uh, over the garden fence or from opposite footpaths or over the phone? A chance to spread the news of Easter. What would you say? Why don't you set a one minute timer for yourself and practice out loud later today? What is the news of Easter? Why is it so good? Mary goes and tells, verse 18. And then later that day, Jesus appears again, finding his followers on lockdown, self-isolating from a, a potential priestly purge. And he shows them his scars, the marks of his wounds from nail and spear. And just think how unique that is. What other God in this world of sickness and death can be recognized by his own scars? Jesus really is the one this world needs amidst pandemics and pain. And we might imagine how much detail John could have gone into here. We're, we're definitely getting the abridged version, aren't we? But Jesus isn't here just to delight and reassure them. He has a mission for them, just as he had for Mary. Verse 21, again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Um, <clears throat> this is John's version of the Great Commission that appears in other Gospels as well. Uh, not, not surprising that it's a little bit different. I'm sure Jesus repeated these things to them at different times and in various formats uh, before he left them. Uh, but here, just as all through John's Gospel, Jesus has talked about the Father sending the Son, so now the Son sends the church. 
We are to reach the world with the news that Jesus is the risen, reigning and returning King. And verse 23, that anyone can come to him and be forgiven for sin and welcomed by him. The business of forgiving sins or withholding forgiveness sounds strange to us. It sounds stern, uh, possibly authoritarian, but uh, really it is simply the result of preaching the gospel, isn't it? That message either brings people to repent as they hear of the forgiveness of God that's bought and paid for and ready for them, or it leaves them unresponsive to that offer of forgiveness so that they're left still carrying their own sin and in the desperate danger of heading towards paying for it themselves. As we share the light of Christ, some will come into the light, others will retreat further from it. And for this mission, they and we have the Holy Spirit. I think Jesus breathing on the disciples and saying, receive the Holy Spirit, is probably a symbolic act at this moment of commissioning. It's a way for them to understand what's going to happen at Pentecost when the Spirit comes. Where does the Spirit come from? He comes from Jesus. Who is he? Well, he's like the life breath of Jesus. It's Jesus in them. Maybe my suggestion to share the gospel over the garden fence is terrifying to you. Maybe you think you could never do it, uh, no matter how much you might rehearse what to say. Uh, but we're not alone in that mission. Um, yeah, okay, if your evangelism, your witnessing was a car, it would probably be a rusty old banger. That's how I feel about mine. <laughs> but lift the bonnet and there's something entirely different in the engine compartment. Talk about horsepower. And so if we won't ever share Jesus with people, is that because we're trusting our own power instead of his? Or because we're so discouraged by those who reject Jesus that we're not willing to search for those who will accept him, even though we're told here what to expect? Uh, it looks to me like we have an order to obey here, not to mention the privilege of sharing. As the, the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Jesus is risen. The world is literally crying out for some good news this Easter. And boy, do we have some good news. The tomb is empty. Jesus is risen. Those are our two bare facts. Finally, our urgent warning. Stop doubting and believe. Stop doubting and believe. Footballer George Best was a spectator at the 1999 European Cup final uh, where Bayern Munich led Manchester United 1-0 from the 6th minute of the game all the way to the 90th minute. So uh, basically all, all of it. Uh, they were just two or three minutes away from winning the biggest trophy in European football. Uh, and towards the end of the game, George Best reckoned it was, it was basically all over. There was no way back for United. So he left the stadium before the end of the game to beat the traffic and get back to his hotel. And he was sitting in a taxi when Manchester United scored two stoppage time goals to turn the match on its head and win the trophy. Poor George uh, stepped out at the wrong moment. And he missed the most important piece of the action. Well, step forward, Thomas. <laughs> He's one of Jesus' 12 core disciples. He's been with Jesus all the way. But on Easter Sunday evening, he had popped out for a bit and missed the most important piece of the action. Maybe the disciples were low on tea bags. Maybe he just needed a breath of fresh air. 
seems pretty likely that the disciples were buzzing with the news of the empty tomb and Mary's encounter with Jesus. I don't know how Thomas would have reacted to that. He is a bit of a dur chap. He's the one who muttered in John 11 about the prospect of going near to Jerusalem and the danger that would be to Jesus. He muttered, ah, yeah, sure, we'll all go. We'll all go there uh, together along with Jesus and we, and we can all die with him, he said. We can all die with him. Thomas was a bit of a pessimist, a bit of a skeptic, uh, and I really like him. Uh, so verse 25, when he, we get, uh, when he gets back with a, a packet of Tetleys, uh, the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. That is my bar. Mistaken identity, hallucination, a ghost. Anything is easier to believe than what you lot are saying. I need to see the marks that only Jesus could have and I need to touch him before I accept that he's really risen. Now it's a full week later. A full week on lockdown with these loonies. Uh, when verse 26, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And this is not just uh, an ancient OMG. Jesus has risen. Everything he said about himself, everything in the Old Testament that he applied to himself, it is all true. He's risen to prove that he is the Son of God, God's King, God's Savior, God himself in the flesh. You know, what, what Thomas says here is pure blasphemy. It is totally out of line for a Jew to say that man, a man is God or that God is a man. So there is no way that Thomas says this unless it's true. And Thomas doesn't just say, you are Lord and God. He says, my Lord and my God, mine. Thomas has been at Jesus' side for years. He has seen and heard everything. But this is the point when Thomas truly believes. And this is what it means to believe in the resurrection. It means bowing your knee to the resurrected Jesus. My Lord and my God. Even Satan knows that Jesus has risen from the dead. The kind of bare facts of it all. But to believe that Jesus is the risen son of God means admitting that he's God. Submitting to him. Worshipping him. Giving control of your whole life over to him because of who he is and what he's done. Bowing to the resurrected Jesus as your God. But how are we supposed to do that when we don't see him? When we can't see him? Well, the fact is that we have enough. So says Jesus. Look at verse 29. Then Jesus told Thomas, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, says John. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We really do have enough to go on. Perhaps like Thomas, who spent all that time with Jesus, you too have spent a lot of time with Jesus' people. A lot of time in and around a church, listening, thinking, never quite committing. The tomb is empty. Jesus is risen. Stop doubting and believe. 
Now, for some, maybe you need to put in some work if you're going to stop doubting and believe. You might need to read up on the case for the resurrection. You don't get a deep dive into the reasons for faith from a half-hour sermon or two. But there's plenty out there to read or listen to. Maybe I could help you find something. For others, you've heard it, you've read it, you know the basics. You just need to believe. You need to commit. You need to taste and see that the Lord is good, as the psalmist says. You need to stop paddling around in the shallows and come swimming. You need to stop um, lurking in the twilight and step into the light. Confess your sin to God. Ask for his mercy and forgiveness through Jesus. Thank him for all he's done at that first Easter and for bringing you to this point. Ask him to bring you into his light, to give you new life and a new heart and a new purpose and a new community and a new future. Say like Thomas, my Lord and my God. Stop doubting and believe. We're living in strange times, difficult times, and maybe we don't appreciate just how significant these times are. Um, But John and others witnessed the pivotal event of all history. A life-changing event for countless billions. uh, An event of absolute relevance to anyone who has lived apart from God and who will one day die and face him. And that is all of us, every human being in the world, ever. Jesus died to absorb God's justice for our sin. And he rose to pioneer new everlasting life to share with us. The tomb is empty. Jesus is risen. Stop doubting and believe. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your risen saviour. Uh, who cancelled sin and defeated death and shares those victories now with us. Thank you that Jesus did glorify you. What a glorious God we have, who didn't leave us in the darkness that we chose for ourselves, but who pursued us and who absorbed that darkness and dispelled it to bring us into the light. Father, thank you for Jesus' gentle concern for Mary, for his firm challenge to Thomas, for his clear mission to his people, to us, to tell the world of a king who saves us from death and hell and who saves us for light and life and love. Today, Lord Jesus, we echo Thomas and we say, our Lord and our God. We praise you and we thank you. We ask you for your help to live for you in these days that are so strange and may yet prove to be so significant. Father, work in your world through your people, by your spirit. Pour out your mercy and glorify your name through our great saviour. And we ask in his name, the precious name of Jesus. Amen.